We're continuing on into chapter 3 of the book of Acts. Sorry, I'm just getting set up still. In Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 26 is what we'll be focusing on today. I know Eric, uh, he taught last week on Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. And so I'm going to cover a little bit over that just for a minute. And I just want to lead us up into what we'll be talking about today in Acts 3, 11 through 26. Here at the International Church of Kurdishiva, we believe in... Uh, expository teaching of the Word of God. We believe that going through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book of the Bible is the best form of teaching God's Word. And the reason why we do that is because we want to let God speak through His Word. We don't want to put our thoughts and our intentions through any of it. We want to let God speak to us through His written revelation. We believe that it's authoritative, it's perfect, it's without error, and there is no prophecy or anything that God will not complete in his perfect timing. And so in Acts 3, uh, we're, we're looking here today at Peter's second sermon. We're looking at the second discourse of what Peter uh, is using in order to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is moving on in uh, after a miracle has been performed by the hand of God through the life of Peter. Now, Eric spoke last week about Peter and John going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried and laid in front of the temple, namely the beautiful gate. And this is where they would beg, and this is where they would ask for money, and this is where they would ask alms. And so seeing Peter and John about to go in, he asked to receive alms from Peter and John. And Peter and John, what they say is, I don't have money. I don't have silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And so he says, rise up and walk. And he takes him by the right hand, Peter does, and raises him up. And immediately his feet and ankles are made strong. And he leaps. It doesn't just stand up. He leaps for joy because he knows that his strength is there in his ankles. And he's no longer lame, but he's walking. And this is a miracle. And all the people see him and are walking. That he's walking and praising God. And they recognized him as the one who sat in front of the beautiful gate of the temple asking for, alm, for alms since he was born. And so, in verse 11 through 26, I'm going to read, starting in verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the portico called Solomon, Solomon's, astounded. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as, as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. And when he had decided to release him, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murder to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man his perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that, may, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, 
Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. And so Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham. And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And so today we're going to focus on the second sermon of Peter. But I think what this does for us in the series of the book of Acts is it gives us a window of opportunity to take next week and spend some real time on what is evangelism. What is the placement of miracles in evangelism? What is the placement of healing in evangelism? How do we use these miraculous signs and wonders being done amongst our midst today in order to share the gospel and declare the mystery of Christ? And so today what we're doing is just focusing on Peter and his second sermon and what that means for us today and how that relates to evangelism. So what is evangelism? How do miracles relate to evangelism? What is the place of signs and wonders in regards to evangelism? And do miracles always accompany evangelism? These are some questions that I had in looking at this text right here, even starting the whole chapter of chapter 3, verse 1 through 26. But seeing what Peter does in response to the miraculous sign is is nothing short of of beautiful. So in the context, we see Peter and John and two of Jesus' former former disciples are walking from the beautiful gate and they see... All that's happening with this man who's lame from birth and they heal him through the power of Jesus Christ. He's raised up and he takes the opportunity to declare the gospel. And so all miracles, whether big or small, I believe they're meant to point to Jesus and to the good news of what he's done for us. Now I want you to remember that because many times we have the gospel wrong and we say it's what we're doing in order to earn God's favor. And that's not true. That's not the gospel. The gospel and the good news is what Christ has done for us on our behalf so that all we now do is serve in obedience and in love and response to that. And that's worship. That's worship. So it's why we use every opportunity to share the gospel with those around us. But even even when miracles do not happen, we know that salvation only comes through the Lord. And so we were, uh, we had two teams that we received from the United States, actually, the past three weeks. And we worked in a community that Eric knows out in Corbellia, which is peri-urban area. When I say peri-urban, it's, uh, you take the rim of the city, it's on the very outskirts of the city. It's a marginalized community in many ways, but it's also a community that has no gospel community of faith that's dwelling in their midst. As Augustine said, that there's no moral compass directing anybody. There's no guidance for anybody spiritually. And so they're just basically doing whatever is right in their own eyes. And so there's no gospel community of faith. And so because of that, we believed one year and a half ago that there needs to be a church there. And so through some efforts of some teams this week, the past three weeks, we were able to penetrate a community with presenting the gospel, praying over people, loving on people in various ways physically through meeting their physical needs, but also spiritual needs and just praying over them. But I remember one time there's one lady... She came out and she uh, she had been raped when she was three or four years old by her father and then kicked down the street and then contracted some other disease. And she's had that since that time. 
and now she's around 23, 24, and her husband doesn't have the same disease. Amazing, neither does her child. And we prayed over her, prayed that God would heal her, but she's not healed to this day. Now, do I believe that God is still God, and that God is still ruling over everything, and He's still sovereign? Yes, I do, and I believe that she does believe that, but God doesn't, hasn't healed her. What does it say about God, that God is still good? Yes, it says that God is good. That God is perfect in His timing, His plans, and also through suffering. And so God uses these things in order to draw us to Himself, in order that we might repent or that we might trust Him more in our lives. So there are varying opinions in, on how we missionally declare the gospel. Good works or social justice, as you want to call it, are meant to point to Jesus and the good news. So I, I think that's awesome that they're going into a, a community of gorillas and in Colombia, and they're wanting to engage them with the gospel. We need to do that. And the best way to do that, honestly, is to show that we're not just here to propagate you. And so uh, we're here to give you Jesus through our actions and through our love and our worship for him. And so we're here to show that to you. And so we need to do those things, but they accompany a message. All these things accompany a message. And the message is the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us on our behalf perfectly. <clears throat> So is it possible for modern miracles to happen today? Yes, but they don't happen in the same way or manner as they did in the initial days of the church. And I believe that, I don't believe what we call a cessationist point of view. That's a, if you went to public school like me, that's a big term, big word. And so cessationist basically means that the gifts died when the apostles all died, the original apostles. And I don't believe that. I believe that the gifts still exist today. Exist today and that we need to be aware of those things. But they're all meant to do two things. One, point to Jesus. And the second, to serve the body. And so if they don't point to Jesus and they don't serve the body, then they're either being abused, as we know today through the health and wealth prosperity gospel, or they're being neglected in some way, in some form. And so we need to be aware of those things as well. There's a balance. And what's our balance? Our balance is what the Bible is saying. And we need to go to the Word continuously. So I believe God is even using, uh, somebody, uh, one day uh, we had a conversation about, do you think God is using you in modern medicine as a modern form of miracle that we can take to a village that doesn't have a vaccination? I said, yeah, I think that's a modern miracle in one sense that God is using medicine, modern medicine, in order to bring a miracle about to a community for them to fight infection. And I said, we can use that in order to share the gospel, declare the good news. I think that's what Jason's doing in his ministry with uh, the research and uh, what we call business's mission. What they're doing with their, their one of their big projects is trying to find a cure for tuberculosis in order for mission groups and everybody to use, take into places that are close to the gospel that might be open to hearing the good news so we can plant churches. And that's an amazing thing. So in this texting case, Peter begins his focus on Jesus and the gospel and all that has been fulfilled through the prophecies of the Old Testament. So this second sermon, this second evangelistic sermon has two focuses. And what his first focus is, it's on Jesus and the power of God that comes through the name of Christ. And the second focus is what he has done for them on the cross, namely Jesus, as the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. I, I always see this every time I teach, but the Bible is one story. It's not two stories, the God of, God of wrath and then the God of love. That's not it. It's one story. It's about God and who He is. It's about His redemption from Genesis to Revelation. It's about promises 
made and promises fulfilled in the New Testament and promises that he is continually fulfilling right now to this day. And so let's focus on verse 11 through 16 and what the Peter's focusing on, which is, which is Jesus. So consider five things, and this is the first thing to consider in verse 11 through 16. Consider the compassionate concern behind Peter's tone. I think that's something we should consider here in verse 11 through 12. It says, While he clung to Peter, namely the lame beggar, all the people ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's, astounded. So the people are amazed at what's going on. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power of piety we have made him walk? So Peter's understanding is that the healing is an act of great power done in their midst. But the perception by the people is they possess some sort of power and it's been done by that or it's been done by their humility. And Peter's rejecting both because he's saying, I'm astounded at this just as much as you are, that the God of the universe would use me, a wretched person as me, in order to bring this about. But the people are amazed and astounded. And the reaction was so strong because of the timing perhaps that even the gravity of the opportunity provided what Peter's recognition was, was taking place forcing him to think about why they were reacting the way they were. And so Peter begins his message by stating their forefathers from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the compassionate tone in Peter's mind is this, is that these people don't understand their own history. He's going to have to go back. He's saying, they're Jews. They're my own brothers, my own kinsmen. I'm going to have to go back all the way to Genesis. Like I said, it's one story. The Bible's just one story. We just kind of fit right in there somewhere. We get to play a part of God's story. Well, he goes back to Israel's history in the Old Testament. And he's telling them, reminding them of the promise made to Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's going back to that original promise that to Abraham that God made. Which was, I will make you as numerous as the sand on the shores and the stars in the sky. And I believe in Revelation 7 when it says... What I saw, John says, I saw a multitude from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And I believe that, I told my wife last night, I think that God is going to put his hand on Abraham's shoulder and say, see what I promised long ago? I fulfilled it. And that's the promise that's been kept from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And so Peter, what is he doing? He knows his audience. He's saying they're Jews. What's the best way? The best way? Let's go back to the promise because they know the Old Testament history. They have some Bible elements. And so... The fascination behind this question in verse 12 is why would this be something they have never seen or heard of before in their own Judaic history? He's curious because they've seen God do miracles from the crossing of the Red Sea, parting this huge, massive water. I mean, if I was there, guarantee would have peed in my pants. You're parting the Red Sea in front of my midst. That's a miracle right there. And over one million crossed through. That's a miracle. But they're not putting the things together here. That The God of the universe who did that way long ago is doing those things right now. And so in 11 and 12, we consider the compassionate concern behind Peter's tone is that they don't understand their Old Testament history. They don't understand where they've come from. They don't get it. And they don't understand that Jesus has fulfilled all that. And what I'm doing now in the New Testament here, what I'm doing now in your midst amongst Peter and healing this lame beggar, I'm showing you how good and powerful the gospel is. Instead, he's denying any form of power or godliness, but instead choosing to focus the attention on God and his gospel. 
Um, while we were out in the community a week and a half ago, a lady we had gone up and decided let's just share the gospel with this lady, see you know what will happen, uh, how she will respond. And we present the gospel. We had spent about an hour and a half just drinking coffee. I think I drank so many cups of coffee. I seriously was wondering, we probably need to leave because I need to go run about a couple of laps. I had so much <laughs> caffeine in my blood. But she was just sharing everything about her life and all those things, and we were just listening. And then when we got done, we finally presented the gospel to her, and we said, what is, what is stopping you right now from becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ? And her response was, nothing. And she started crying, and I didn't know what was going on. And I, whenever it's kind of, not awkward, but whenever it's kind of like, I don't get it. You know, it just kind of bust out of tears. She finally stopped. She said, I prayed for somebody to come and show me for about the last year and a half what the Bible was saying. And you came, and I prayed the same prayer last night. You came today. And I thought, this is the power of the gospel. This is a miracle. This is a miracle that God would take wretched sinners like us and bring us to her. Now, it's not a physical miracle, but it's a spiritual miracle. And that's what Peter's talking about. I'm astounded that you don't understand the spiritual miracle that God is doing in your midst. So consider the compassionate concern behind Peter's tone. And second, consider the contextualization behind Peter's presentation. In verse 13, you read, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release him. So we're seeing here him going back again to Old Testament history. So how does God the Father, my question here is, how does God the Father glorify His Son through this healing? And I believe it's because Jesus stands in the line of the patriarchs, meaning those who, in the line of the Jewish promises, He stands in line and the spiritual forefathers of the Jewish people. So God has glorified Jesus, whom Peter deliberately calls servant, to remind them of Isaiah fifty-two thirteen, which is the suffering servant passage that we read of. Now, what we need to, to know here is that the contextualization behind Peter's presentation is not, hey, let's go back to your Old Testament history. But he's saying, I want you to go back because I want you to see Jesus, 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 Jesus being prophesied here, 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 here. And it's very gentle, much the same way when Jesus took the disciples and he took the Old Testament scrolls and he opened them before them in Luke. And he says, here. Here I am, here I am, here I am. And he showed them and interpreted the scriptures for him in the Old Testament to reveal to them. These are the things I've done. 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 Now, practical sense, this makes evangelism so much easier. When we just say, this is the story of God, and we fit sort of right in there. This little speck of dust in there, in his story. It just makes evangelism so much more easier when we say, this is the story of God. And him completing it, and him still completing it until final revelation. It just makes it so much simpler and less formulaic in that you got to do this, 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 this. Because aren't we saying the same thing that Mormons say, that Jehovah's Witnesses say, that Muslims say, that Sikhs say, that Hindus say, that Buddhists say, that you've got to do these things in order to be accepted by God? Rather than just say, here's the story of Scripture, what's stopping you from following Jesus? And becoming one of his disciples right now. Nothing. Nothing. Because he's done everything for you. And so we see here Peter in his second evangelistic sermon right here. 
just the contextualization. So we have to contextualize what's going on in the person who's listening to the gospel, where they're at spiritually, and trying to understand and discern what do they understand about God? What do they understand about man and creation and what has happened and what God has done? Maybe nothing to start from ground zero. But the issue is, is that we have to understand, like Peter did, who we're talking to and really focus in on declaring the gospel well and faithfully. So the third thing, consider... Okay, so we already said consider... The tone and, and compassionate concern in Peter's, uh, in his speech. And consider the contextualization behind his presentation. Now let's consider the focus of Peter's message, which is Jesus. In 14 and 15. But you deny the holy and righteous one. So he doesn't break, uh, he doesn't uh, reserve anything. He's just out there with it all. He's saying, you you did it. You deny the holy and righteous one, meaning Jesus, and ask for a murder to be granted, granted to you. When Pilate in the previous verse said he was going to release somebody else. But you wanted that murder instead of the holy and righteous one. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. And to this we are witnesses. And so his focus here is to real that. Their denial, the Jews' denial of the Son of God by crucifixion to show the hope that's found in the gospel. He's mentioning the Jews killing the Son of God, the author of life. So those listening would understand that Peter's referring to them as those who killed Jesus outright. So Peter says that God the Father raised the Son from the dead. And as a result, we have hope in the gospel and hope in His name. What does 1 Corinthians 15 say? That if Christ has not been raised then your faith is in vain and you're still in your sins. That's miserable. If we're, there's no hope. So the resurrection, people say, what's the difference when Christ died and he died for sins? I mean, why is it necessary that he had to be resurrected? Because the resurrection proved and authenticated everything that Christ had done for us. So we needed the resurrection because it authenticated everything. Yes, I did all these things, and here's the final thing right here. I've been raised from the dead. I have power over death. And that's our victory right there, through faith in the gospel. And so the purpose in here in these verses is to show that the people knew that the prophets, that through the prophets, that the Messiah is the righteous one. But they didn't understand, as Peter was trying to help them know, as Isaiah wrote, By his knowledge, my righteous servant will make many righteous, as it says in Isaiah 53 11, Second uh, Corinthians five twenty one. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's our hope right there. That's what we call uh, God dying in our place for our sins. Some people call it cosmic uh, child abuse. I know one author. I say that's ridiculous. That's God and his love for us. That we don't have to ascend the mountain by our efforts and our good works. Because what if I could say that the God of the universe came down to us in the form of human flesh, Jesus Christ. So we see the focus of Peter's message. It's on Jesus. It's continuing on Jesus. And look in verse 16. He says, In his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So I need to stay here and focus on something. And it really has to do with the health and wealth, prosperity, gospel, 
Because people will say, if you do not have enough faith, that's why you're sick. And it's why you have a cough. And it's why you're throwing up or whatever. It's because you don't have enough faith. And I would say, false teacher. So verse 16 gives glory to God by revealing the intensity of raising someone from the dead in their midst. So this verse teaches believers that only through faith in Christ can one be truly healed spiritually. Spiritually is what we're going for. Because all the time in the Gospels, Jesus is always encountering Jews and Gentiles who wanted something more than him. In John 6, we read about the people uh, receiving bread, Jesus multiplying the loaves and the fishes. And we read about God doing that through Christ his son. And we see how Jesus goes across the river or the sea. And then the people are waiting for him. And he says, why are you waiting for me? And he knows what's going on. And the people, well, we were looking for you. Where were you? We were looking for... What Jesus knows is they weren't looking for Jesus. They were looking for the bread. They weren't looking for the bread of life. And so God is for God. And we need to worship him, not for his gifts, but because of who he is, because he's the giver. And that's it. And so throughout the history of the church, I believe this, the gift of healing of the sick, it's never been absent. It's always been there. If we look at Francis of Assisi or Martin Luther, um, if we even look at uh, John Wesley, it's just not to mention these names of modern-day Christians, but they stand out in relation to a healing ministry. So amongst even the gifts of the Holy Spirit is the gift of healing mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12.9 and verse 28. But Paul, however, he's pointedly and rhetorically right here, rhetorically asking, do all have gifts of healing? And we know that's not true. But Paul himself has performed healing miracles during his missionary tours, but he's never given any real true mention, indication that he healed Epaphroditus. Remember in Philippians 2.27. Because he was so ill that he was, almost, he was almost to death. So Paul openly admits that he left, I think it's called Trophimus, sick in Miletus in 2 Timothy 4.20. And then Paul himself had to contend with a thorn in the flesh, of course we know in 2 Corinthians 12.7-9 where he says, Lord, I wish that we removed this thorn from my flesh. Some people call it the annoying person in our lives, <laughs> but it's just the uh, the thorn in our flesh that we suffering. I mean, I've been suffering for the, everyone here who who lives in Curitiba, who knows the weather here. It changes so quickly. My body has responded so poorly. I've been to the doctor more times this past year than I've been in the last ten years, I think. But it's just you, you, you. That's my thorn in my flesh. This this year has been just always being sick, struggling with some some ailment. But we know that Paul himself had to contend with these trials and sufferings. So really in short summary here, and just in regards to this verse, because we need to be clear that Paul was not able to use his gift of healing whenever he pleased and whenever wherever he was. But James does instruct us to call on the elders of the church when we are ill. And these elders should pray and anoint with oil in the name of the Lord. In James 5.14, he's saying and he's emphasizing that prayer offered in faith will heal the sick person in verse 15. So faith and prayer, they are the prerequisites, I believe, to which the Lord responds. But sometimes healing miracles do not occur. And this is meant to strengthen our faith. And this is what does make us stronger as children of God, knowing our Father. And it's, it's tough when God is not responding and we're watching people suffer. You know, I was telling, I think it was Eric, but seven years ago my father passed away from a humongous year and a half battle of cancer. And I prayed every day. I thought, God, would you just heal this man? And it finally got to the point where I thought, I don't think God's going to heal him. 
I really thought that. Not because I didn't have enough faith, but I believed that God was going to use this in a different way. And it wasn't until the last week I thought, I don't believe that God's going to hear my dad. I think he's going to die. That's it. But what my dad did in response to that is he worshipped God. He worshipped. And that's the amazing thing is that we cannot control these things that happen in our lives because of sin. But how we respond is what really, really matters. And how we allow the gospel to transform us and moves us and move us into a deeper relationship. That's what truly matters. So Peter's main emphasis here is on the fulfilled prophecies which took place and the strong evidence of the resurrection which confirmed the greatest miracle of all, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So, the gospel must be proclaimed in word and in deed. And we must use every opportunity we have to proclaim the gospel message. So that was the first part. So Peter's focus is on Jesus. Oh, man. His focus is on Jesus, and his focus now is on a call to repentance and faith based on the prophets, 17 through 26, verses 17 through 26. So, we've seen the three considerations in the first part. In the second part, let's consider the urgency and reason behind Peter's message. In verse 17, we read, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. So why is he beginning here like that? I think he's addressing them as ignorant, but he's also addressing them as brothers. So there's love, but there's honesty. It's like, I love you, man, but you're an idiot. I mean, I love you, but you're just so foolish right now. You know, could you just listen to me? It's kind of like the dad talking to his kid. And I mean, on the way I talk to my kids sometimes, I think, I know you're two and a half, but why can't you listen the first time? But really and truly, I love them. And that's the way Peter's talking here to these people. He's not going into talking down to them condescendingly. He's talking directly to them as somebody he really truly loves. I want you to know this, but you're acting so ignorant. And he says in verse 17, I know that you acted in ignorance as also your ruler. So I know you did. I know the people above you did. They acted in ignorance. There wasn't anything you did purposely. But the fact is that Peter's addressing them this way because he still has that loving tone and urgency behind him because he's calling them. So in verse 18 we read, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So we see here just a blatant statement here that God fulfilled everything that the Old Testament was saying about Jesus. He did it all. And now he's doing even more. He's fulfilling what he's going to do. He's calling people to himself. We're seeing the New Testament, the epistles, the Acts, all these letters. We're seeing all these books here after the Gospels fulfilling what Jesus had said what was going to happen. So Peter's use of the Old Testament prophecy in these verses is saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecy by the prophets. In verse 19 through 20, we see Peter is calling right now them to repent it. So we see the, the tone of urgency, and we see right here how he's doing it in verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. So... In evangelism, we've got to share the gospel faithfully, but we also have to call into something. So what's what Christ has done? So what's what do we need to do now? Repent. You need to repent. Repent of what? Repent of our sin. Repent of who we are. We're rebellious, hard-hearted people who don't respond to God because we don't have the Spirit of God. We're totally doing our own thing, and we need a Savior. And we need to repent of our own self-volition that's totally wrong and totally full with evil, wicked mouths. 
And some might even say here, I don't have evil, wicked mouths. I'm a good person. I do these things. And I would say, you know what? God says, he says, those things are even our most, our most good deeds are like filthy rags to him because they're not subservient to his economy. They're not subservient to God's will and to God's purposes. So in verse 19, 20, he's calling to repentance. He's saying, so that, that's the purpose clause, so that your sins may be blotted out. And that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Now that might be a little hard to understand. That was something I had to work through and understand a little bit more. But one thing is true is that when you repent and trust in Christ, your sins are blotted out. But it's not that you stop repenting. I think that's something that we have to correct uh, in how we share the gospel, but also in how we view the Christian life. It's not that repentance and we're done. It's that we know who our hope is and we continue repenting every day. We're not saying, God, I love you and I trust you as my Savior. And for the first time, acting like it's the first time every single day, we're just saying, God, you are my hope in the gospel. I remember the first day you awakened me to this truth and you're continually doing that every day. I need to repent continuously. That's something I have to practice daily in my life. I need to repent. I need to come clean with things. I need to ask the Lord to transform my life because that's what the process of the Christian life is. It's an inward and it's an outward journey. It's an inward journey that God is doing within us personally. He's transforming our lives into the image of His Son. And outwardly, external journey, it's with other people. So I, I get this all the time. People say, I've been saved for my sins. And I say, okay, what have you been saved for? Well, I've been saved for a great life. And I say, is that it? Well, I've been saved for this. And I say, okay, what if God's saying this in the New Testament? You've been saved for salvation and for community. You've been saved for His purposes. As Ephesians 2.10 says, so that good works may come about that He predestined beforehand. But also, you've been saved for community. You've been saved for a relationship with God's people. Because you're not meant to do this relationship or this Christian life on your own. You're meant to do this thing called the Christian life with other people, with other Christians. So that you might grow and understand the gospel and be held accountable. And be in community so you can grow together. Because isn't that what the purpose of the church is? Is to be what? Living stones built upon the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, in our lives. So in verse 21 we read here. Whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things, but which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So what is he saying back in verse 20? He's saying here about that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. He's answering the question about the constant renewal of the presence of God every day. There's a book, a little one called by Brother Lawrence, The Practice of the Presence of Lord, if you don't have it, you need to get it. It's an amazing little read. It's not um, it's not long at all, but I recommend you read that. I also recommend you read Donald Whitney's uh, Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life. But also, these books are not the Bible. So I'm not saying read these and substitute the Bible. That's not what I'm saying. Use these books as they will help spur you into deeper knowledge of the Word and deeper knowledge of prayer. Because that's what we do. As we soak in the scriptures and we soak in the word. Look at verse 21 again. 
He's saying that Christ is fulfilling the role of the prophet by being born amongst the Jewish race and by speaking the words of God. So the restoration will be completed when everything has been subjected under Jesus Christ and his rule and when he hands the kingdom to his father as 1 Corinthians 15, 24 says. So God makes his promises known to the holy prophets and provides the holy wisdom by which the prophets mention Jesus Christ by which they serve. So there's this arcing to the New Testament. How is the, How are the promises from the Old Testament arced over into the New Testament? It's through the writings and through the prophecies made by the prophets. And so we see here how it goes flows into Jesus. Everything flows into Jesus. The whole Bible is about Jesus. So consider the last thing here. Peter's winsome attitude behind his usage of the Old Testament. He's not doing this. I should have done that. You're supposed to not do that, but I did. So you're not supposed to, you, you know, he, he's not, not beating him over the head with a microphone. He's not continuing, you're an idiot. You should know your scrolls. You know what I'm saying? He's not saying that at all. He's saying, you need to know that Jesus fulfills all these things you've been confused about for the last five, six decades, you know, of your life. And so know that here, Peter is very winsome in his attitude. He says in verse 22, Moses said, he goes back to Moses. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Well, that's pretty harsh. But you know what? That's not talking about any prophet here. He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about those who reject Jesus will be destroyed. Will be put into hell. And so the prophet spoke, you are the sons of the prophets in the covenant of Abraham, and all the families through you shall be blessed. This is going back to Deuteronomy 18, 18. This is going back to Moses when he said that God will raise up a prophet like him in Numbers 12, 8. But Christ was a prophet greater than Moses in every regard, as Hebrew 8, Hebrews 8, 6 says. And it's a new and better covenant as Hebrews goes on. Because what was the author, which I believe is Barnabas, and some might say Paul, that I believe that Hebrews is speaking directly and saying that the new and better covenant is Jesus. It's better than the old covenant. That's why some people say, well, we're part of the, the original covenant. And I would say, I think we're part of the new covenant. Because the new covenant is Jesus fulfilled everything for us. And the new covenant is you put your trust and faith in Christ and you follow him in complete obedience. That's it. But let's not forget and let's not neglect the Old Testament. The Ten Commandments are meant to do what? To showcase Jesus and our hope in Jesus. So look here in verse 24 and 25. They were heirs of the promise because they were sons of the prophets who spoke the actual words. So why does this get from Moses to Samuel? Look in verse 24 and 25. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these, these days. But you are the sons of the prophets and the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So, now all those books in between Deuteronomy and Samuel, they do speak about Jesus. I mean, you can't just deny those things right there. Because in Judges it says they did what was ever right in their own eyes because we needed a perfect judge. In Joshua, we needed the perfect conqueror. In Ruth, we needed the redeemer. So all those things do talk about Jesus and they illustrate Jesus, who Jesus would be. But in Samuel, it really begins again, the initial constant uh, 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 renewal of who Jesus would be in the prophecies. So all the nations shall be blessed as a result of the fulfilled prophecy of the Son of God. So as we see here in these verses, 
Peter is continually hammering the Old Testament because he knows that these people know it, but he's telling them it's about Jesus. It's not about you. It's not about what you should do. It's not about what you can do. It's about what God has done for you, for you through Christ. And what's the promise here and just the blessing? It's that all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Namely, every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so that's what our missional, our mission Our global causes, because of these scriptures here, points us to Christ and to the nations. So look in verse 26. See the the winsome attitude? He's not beating over the head. He's saying, look, my brothers, let me take you back to Moses. Let me take you to these things right here. He's being very much apologetic in his approach. And in verse 26, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So God raised up his own, own son, Jesus Miraculously, just as Peter raised up the lame beggar. So there's a mirroring of what Peter's doing. He's just doing what God has done for us. But he's not saying, I raised you up, so you should believe in the gospel. He's saying, I raised you up by the power of God in the name of Jesus. He's done this in our midst, not me, not from any power I have or piety, but what God's done. And so what do we see here? We see Jesus' mission is being completed right here through his original apostles, his disciples. Jesus' mission was first to go, as it says here, to go to the Jews. And he's sending out the gen- the, his own original apostles and disciples to go to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. But Peter receives his Old, Test- Old Testament, what we call identification of the suffering servant of, of Jesus, first and foremost in Isaiah. So what's the blessing? It's to turn each one of them from the wickedness through repentance for salvation. So what's our blessing? We receive this good news. And so we get to call people, call people to a relationship with God to, for salvation, for community, through repentance, through confession of sin, through admittance that we need a Savior. So amazing, just seeing the timing right now, that God is good to us. He's been so good to us through His Son Christ. He has given us more than we could ever ask or imagine. And I think to myself, how blessed I am uh, just being here in the city for how long we've been here and being able to declare the mystery of the gospel in another language, but also as well to be able to be with people in community. And I think to myself, just when Peter, he understood all this and he realized it, how much I don't realize the miracles that God's doing amongst me today. And I think there's some reasons, some gospel are called gospel reasons for change here. I think after hearing these scriptures, we can say, one, you have been forgiven through Christ and the gospel is real. So today, if you're here and you say, I never understood the message of the gospel. Let's just say this, that God is calling you to a life with him. What, what you are, you're a sinner just like me. Romans 3 says very clear that all have fallen short of the glory of God. And we're in need of a savior. There's none who does good, not even one. Not even one who does good. So if you say, I'm good. There's no one does good. And you're in need of a Savior. And what God has done through Christ, through His Son Jesus, in our place for our sins, He did perfectly to remove from us so that we could have life with Him. And He did that. In our place, blood was shed, but He was raised from the grave, and the resurrection is real. And if you have not trusted in Christ as your Savior, I encourage you to trust Jesus because the gospel is real. Just as Peter believed and just as a lame beggar believed. 
A second thing I think for gospel reasons for change is that we deny the author of life. And we're at one time deserving of condemnation and God's wrath. And I think another thing is only through Christ Jesus can we know true salvation experience his purposes. I think some people, even as Christians, they wonder, what's my purpose in life? What am I really doing here? And I think we really need to remember that only through Christ can we know true salvation experience his blessing, but only through his written word as well. A fourth thing which I take to heart is repentance is a daily task and it can't be reserved for a one-time experience in order to step our way into the Holy Game. Repentance is a daily task. Truly just wondering, God, where do I need to repent? Where have I run people over through my words, my actions? Where have I neglected fellowship with other people? Where have I basically neglected the Christian life in some areas, but I'm pursuing others? which proved to be hypocrisy rather than consistency with the Lord. Fifth thing, we must know and understand what Jesus fulfilled in the Old Testament. A lot of people here in Brazil, they love to focus on the, just select passages in the Old Testament and neglect the meat. When I say the meat, I mean the things that really talk about Jesus and Isaiah. It's just hard to plow through, but we just need the Holy Spirit to reveal those things to us. And I think we need to be in the same trajectory Learning from the Old Testament and saying, God, reveal what Jesus has done for me and how he was prophesied in the Old Testament. Now everything points to him and to his name. I think the sixth thing is we are sons and daughters of God. If you're truly saved, Galatians 4 says you're no longer a slave, but a son and an heir. That's totally different. Our standing and place before God is our unity with Christ. And that's what makes the gospel so real, important, and impactful to us as Christians. And we've been adopted into his promises and mission. And the seventh thing is this. So all nations, families of the earth will be blessed as a result of God's news being proclaimed. So I want to say, not say, as we say, parabéns, congratulations, and good work. But I want to say, God be with you. God be glorified. God be honored. May churches be planted. May people come to know Jesus through what you're doing. But know that what you're doing doesn't earn you salvation. It's what's already been done, and this is just worship. As someone once said, we're just running up the score on so many levels in our lives. The greatest thing that could ever happen is that God transforming us and making us more like him. You know, in Romans 12, where it says... Be transformed. You know, in the Greek, it's, it's the word that goes back to metamorphosis. We're continually being transformed into the likeness of God. We're being just developed. So a new creation pops out. A beautiful creation that God is making more through His Son Christ and His Spirit. So let's take those reasons and let's push them into our evangelism. Let's take the example from Peter. Let's learn from that. Let's glean from how we need to contextualize the gospel. Let's consider how we can be more winsome. Let's consider how we can have a loving tone. Let's consider the things that we can do to point them to Jesus, even through the Old Testament. And so everything in the book of the Bible is about Jesus. So let's do that. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for Acts 3, 1 through 26. Thank you for 11 through 26, specifically today. I thank you for healing that lame beggar through your power. Um, and using Peter, who always seemed to stick his foot in his mouth at the wrong time. But thank you, God, for, through your son, restoring Peter. When Jesus said to him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And then restoring him and saying, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. 
feed my people, shepherd them. And Peter being restored and taking that confidence, the gospel restoration, and moving towards a life of service to you as worship. So we pray that, God, we would all be like that. We would be people who love you, people who love the gospel, love what you've done for us. And we take that passion and then ignite us, God, into service that's greater than we could ever imagine. But it's all relying upon you. And it doesn't earn us salvation. It doesn't earn us right standing before you. It's just worship out of response to what you've done for us. So thank you, God. Thank you. Move us to a greater, deeper knowledge of who you are through Jesus. In your name, pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.